Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 10, verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's downtown campus. It's a pleasure to be together. And this morning, as has been mentioned, we have the marvelous opportunity to have with us, as a special guest, some of our friends from Mission Adelante. And so here's what you need to know, and and that's core to who we are as a church. We believe that Jesus is uniquely and beautifully working through his church And simultaneously, the church is at its best when it's linking arms with strategic organizations around the city who are uniquely positioned to do dynamic work in various aspects of our city. And most of these organizations are under-resourced and overextended. And so through your tithes and offerings, there's a section that goes to various partners, we call them, these organizations around the city, to support their really good work. It's an avenue we believe as the church scattered across the city to collaborate and point to avenues to serve as we did with Mission Adelante this morning. And who we have with us is a dear friend of mine. His name is Jarrett Meek. He uh, got his MDiv from Midwestern, right up here, right up the road, Um, and he is a pastor. He's the founder and the CEO of Mission Adelante, and he's been a true gift to me. We've gotten a lot of lunches together, had a lot of conversations, and as we have set our stake in the ground this year to better understand, to rediscover who Jesus actually is and was and continues to be, This morning, Jarrett was kind enough to come and not only tell us a little bit on how God has worked both biblically and within his own experience to guide, to start Mission Adelante and continue that work, but also remind us what Jesus is passionate about. Remind us what Jesus points us to in God's will for our lives. And so we have an amazing opportunity to learn from a friend, a colleague, a brother in Christ. But before we do that... Why don't we pray together, shall we? Dear God, thank you so much for the amazing work that you are doing by the power of your spirit centered on the person and work of Jesus at Mission Adelante. As this partner of ours here in Kansas City, both in Kansas and in Missouri, as we seek to faithfully care for the vulnerable. And I pray, God, that this morning, as you have so many times worked through Jarrett to speak to me, that you would work through him afresh this morning, based upon your word, for the good and the building up of your church, that you would speak to us afresh through Jarrett. That we would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the brilliance of your word for our moment in time as we seek to follow Jesus today faithfully and fruitfully. God, we hold fast to your promise that when we gather in the name of Jesus, your spirit is uniquely working among your people. And so we hold fast to that truth. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Let's give Jared a warm Christ community welcome this morning. Thank you, Gabe, and thank you guys for having me this morning. It's always exciting to be here with you all. I feel like I know different faces in the crowd from connecting at Mission Adelante. Hi, Sarah, how are you? Um, but you guys have been tremendous partners of ours, really, for, I think, about 12 years now. So since 2007, we connected, and we've done a lot of work together. So it's uh, my joy to be able to come and give back a little bit today for all of the blessing that you have given to us at Mission Adelante as partners. So... This morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what we do at Mission Adelante, but not so much the what, but really the why. Um, the why behind it. We work with immigrants and refugees, and so naturally, in this time that we're living in the United States, that's a topic that's often in the news. I'm going to stay away from the politics of this and really dive deep into, into the scripture in it and kind of what Jesus says about it. So... I'm excited. For those of you who have volunteered at Mission Adelante, I'm going to tell some stories that you've heard before. Um, and I'm going to be testing to see if the second group laughs at my jokes as much as the first group did. So, um, so I want to start out by just um, sharing a little bit about my own story uh, as it connects with this and, and then kind of move from there. But we, in 2002, my family and I, which at the time consisted of uh, my wife and I and uh, two daughters, two and four years old, we were called to Bolivia as missionaries. So I had had a little high school Spanish, and so it was South America. That's where we felt like God was calling us. And so we joined up with South America Mission, and the first thing they did was send us to Costa Rica to learn Spanish. So that was the beginning of our story. At that time, we were moving our family. We were going to be homeschooling our girls down there, so we had all these books. We landed in Costa Rica about 9 o'clock at night with 19 70-pound bags. That's when you could take a 70-pound bag on an airline. So back in those days. And when we landed, we realized pretty quickly that we were not in Kansas anymore. It was a different place. The sights, the smells, everything seemed different. And we were picked up by this guy. He had a couple vans. One we put all of our stuff in, and the other one was for just us, our family, and we were driving through San Jose, Costa Rica, and everything was different as we were soaking up this new place that we were in. I, re I remember particularly the lights as we were driving through um, the Central Valley in San Jose on the mountains that were surrounding it just seemed like they were different in some way than the city lights here in Kansas. And so we're going through, we arrive, they drop us off at this house. And we unpack our stuff enough. It's now closer to 11 o'clock. We put our girls to bed. And we are now in our new home. And we're loving it. We're enjoying it. We go to bed that night excited, a little bit scared about what was to come. And very early in the morning, 5 o'clock, all of San Jose is wide awake. It was the strangest thing. The sun was shining. The roosters were crowing in the middle of the city. And this little manhole cover that's right outside my window was going clink, 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 clink as every motorcycle drove over it. And so, boom, I popped up. The girls were still sleeping. And I started looking around the house and I said, we need food. How do I get food? So that was the first big challenge I had to overcome in Costa Rica was figuring out how do we get food in this new place? So 
I had seen this little bakery on the way in, so I walked a couple blocks to this bakery, and I'm entering in there thinking, okay, I'm going to get a dozen donuts, and we'll share them as a family. And I walk in there, and there's no donuts. <laughs> and I'm looking around, and I'm like, everyone's got these little metal trays with tongs. So I'm used to going to the counter and saying, um, a dozen donuts, please. But now everybody, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the system. I find the stack of trays. I find the tongs. And I fill my bag with, with dry bread, which I'm thinking, is this going to be good? Are my kids going to like this? And I take it. I go out of there. I've got my bag of bread, and I have hunted, and I've gathered. <laughs> and I will survive. My family will survive. And so I'm walking home with this bag of bread. And as I approach the house, my neighbor is leaving to go to work. And I'm excited. I'm like, this is my first opportunity to really uh, connect with my neighbor to begin uh, to use my high school Spanish. And so my neighbor comes out with a big smile on his face and I'm smiling and nervous and he reaches out his hand to shake my hand and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, buenos dias, como estas, something like that. And we reach out, we grab hands and he goes, hola, como le va? And I'm paralyzed. <laughs> I'm stunned there, I'm just waiting. And I'm like, wow, what, what did he just say? And so now's the, the awkward moment of silence where I'm trying to figure it out and he's trying to go, how do I communicate? And he just, he repeats himself. Oh, look, hola, como le va? And I'm going, wow, I've never heard this one before. <laughs> and so we shake hands, we nod and smile. He goes on his way and I go on my way. And I failed my first Spanish test. <laughs> and I realized later that como le va just means how's it going? and that there's more than one way to greet someone in Spanish. <laughs> my high school Spanish teacher would not have been proud of me at that moment. So that was my first moment. It was an awkward moment. I felt like a fish out of water. I felt vulnerable. Um, I felt like an outsider. I don't know if any of you who have ever traveled and actually lived overseas for a period of time, if you've ever felt that sensation of this is not my home, and I feel um, like I don't quite belong. That was the feeling that we had. Now, my wife, who's sitting in the back row back there, can you raise your hand, Kristen? I always love to tell this story about her, and today she's here to actually hear it. <laughs> so I may be in trouble afterwards. A couple weeks after that, we decided to go to a church. It was just a few blocks from our house. So we walked to it, Caroline and Annie, um, Caroline's back there too. At the time, they were two and four years old, and we'd taken them into this church, and we didn't know what time it started. It was a big church, and we arrived halfway through the service. So conspicuously, we kind of work our way in. We had missed the worship time, and the pastor's preaching, and we're catching a word here and there, and we kind of like it. We're like, kind of like the vibe here, but we had missed the worship time. So when it's over, we said to one another, we're like, well... If, if we don't have to wait too long for the next service, then let's stick around and see how the worship is. And so um, we identified a nice-looking lady over there, and then my wife got the assignment to go ask her what time the service is. She had just had a JUCO Spanish class, so she was feeling confident. <laughs> so she walks up to this lady, and she says, hola. And then she says, 
¿Cuándo es la cerveza? Which means, when is the beer? Cerveza, servicio, the two are pretty close. So you can understand how she might have gotten those two mixed up. But the lady looks at my wife with this paralyzed, confused look like, um, we don't serve beer at this church. <laughs> After the morning service, Jacob said, you ought to tell Gabe to get a beer for your wife and say, we do serve beer at this church. <laughs> um, but anyway, we didn't go back to the church. We were a little embarrassed, but we did go to another church. So in that time frame, we did experience many other moments where we were feeling like we don't belong here. We're fish out of water. We don't know how the system works. We don't know how to buy groceries, how to get from point A to point B. We're often making mistakes with our Spanish. We feel awkward. And we arrive at this church and we connect with this family, this couple named Edwin and Sadie. They didn't speak any English. And as you can tell, we didn't speak much Spanish. But somehow, we were able to communicate. Next thing you know, we're over at their house, barbecuing chicharrones on their grill, part of a little Bible study they were having. And then we're hiking mountains with them, doing day trips together. At one point, Edwin says, um, Jarrett, let me teach you how to really speak Spanish. So I was learning in my classes five hours a day, but he wanted to get his hands on me and really teach me how to do it. And so we ended up meeting every Thursday night. We would have dinner and we would just talk. I still remember the time where Ed, Edwin drew it out on a page and explained how the Costa Rican government works to me. <laughs> there was an exciting moment and a friendship was being formed. They were befriending us. They were taking us in. They were helping us feel at home in their country. And along the way... At some point, I realized, wow, I've never done that for an immigrant in my own country. I've never had someone else in my home for dinner from another country. And here I am on the flip side of that, being the recipient of this hospitality and compassion. And he is making me in his country feel like an insider. I was an outsider and he's helping become, become an insider in his country. And it's a profound experience and a profound friendship. We are still friends with Edwin and Sadie today. They've come to Kansas to visit us. We've gone back to Costa Rica to visit them. And we have this beautiful long-term connection that has been developed over time. Now, Edwin, for most of our time in Costa Rica, really didn't trust me to be able to make it to his house without, asking, without picking me up. So he would drive 15 minutes to pick me up, 15 minutes back to his house. We'd spend some time there together with their family, all of us. Then when we were done, he'd drive 15 minutes to drop me off and 15 minutes back through the horrible San Jose traffic. Every time we wanted to hang out, that's what Edwin had to do. He'd spend an hour in the car every time. Just because. No one told him to do it. His pastor didn't say, Edwin, do this. He was just doing that, making personal sacrifices to build a friendship with somebody who wasn't very satisfying to be friends with. <laughs> I could barely speak his language. Over time, my Spanish improved, our Spanish improved, our friendship deepened. Towards the end of our time in Costa Rica, Edwin, when he invited me over, he said, now here's my address. I think you can make it on your own with a taxi this time. 
So he writes out the address for me, and here's how addresses work in Costa Rica. It's not 251 North 15th Street, right? So it's in San Francisco de los Rios, from the main street, the bread shop called Musmani, go 200 meters to the south and 400 meters to the west, it's the yellow house with the black gate. That is your address. If you want to know how to get somewhere in Costa Rica, that's how it works. And so he writes this whole thing out for me. And so I call the taxi. I'm waiting for the taxi to come, and the phone rings, and it's Edwin. And he goes, Jarrett, actually said Jaime. They call me Jaime in Spanish. He goes, Jaime, I forgot to tell you, don't let that taxi driver charge you more than X amount of colones. And I realized at the time, wow, not only has Edwin befriended me, not only is he making personal sacrifices to be with me, helping me feel like an insider, Edwin's protecting me. He realizes that in his country, I'm vulnerable to being abused and taken advantage of. And that's not going to happen on his watch. That experience in Costa Rica marked my life and opened my eyes. And I started to realize that is how God wants us to treat people who come from other places in our own city. That's what it looks like to treat somebody who comes from another, another place. And I had never done that before. An interesting dynamic happened to me. I don't know if you guys have ever bought a new car. And then suddenly you start seeing that everyone in the city has that car. Like a red Honda. Wow, there's red Hondas everywhere. I had no idea. That's what happened to me with this situation. I really had never thought about the intersection of immigration, immigrants, and the Bible before, but now all of a sudden I'm reading in the Bible and it's just everywhere. I'm seeing it everywhere for the first time. Um, I would think about, you know, who does God call us to show special compassion to? And I would think about widows, orphans, maybe the poor. Did you guys know that in the Old Testament, almost every time that widows and orphans are mentioned together, immigrants are mentioned with them? That showing of compassion, that protecting, that um, valuing, all of those things are mentioned together. Widows, orphans, immigrants. Immigrants, widows, orphans. The three are mentioned together. That Old Testament Hebrew word for immigrant is ger. I've done a little bit of study on this. It's used 92 times in the Old Testament. There aren't that many words that are used 92 times in the Old Testament. It's not an obscure theme. It's a major theme. And I start seeing it all over the place. I'm going, I've been to seminary. I'm a pastor. How did I miss this? It's everywhere. And then I start thinking about the bigger picture story of the Old Testament. And you go, wow, the story of the Old Testament is a story of a people on the move migrating from one place to the other, starting with Abraham when he was called to leave the comfort of his own home and go to a land that God would show him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph ends up sold as a slave, ends up in Egypt. Then his family has to come later, seeking refuge there because there was a famine in the land. They're received in. Hundreds of years later, the Hebrew people leave under the leadership of Moses with God leading them out to find a new land. Again, they're migrants. They're looking for a place. 
over and over again in the Old Testament, it is the overarching story. Ruth, Naomi, if you know that story. Captive in Babylon, exiled in Assyria. Even the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph when Jesus is a baby and having to flee to Egypt. There is such a dominant story and theme happening in the Bible around immigration and migration and people from other places, and it's powerful, and I couldn't see it until I had experienced it myself. I want to shift gears and talk about a moment when Jesus was teaching. He was talking to a group of people, probably religious leaders, and one of them at one point asked him a question to test him, and he says, what is the greatest commandment? So really wanting to get to the bottom of things, testing Jesus on his theology. What is the greatest commandment? How are you going to respond to this? Are you, do you have good orthodoxy? And so Jesus responded, and it's familiar to us, and we read a different version of it um, today in a different situation, but he responds with what we know as the greatest commandment. And I just want to read this and unpack it a little bit because it has special significance to what we're talking about today. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, I want to unpack this just a little bit and, and look at a few phrases in here that I think are really important. First, he just comes right out and he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? But what's interesting is that he didn't stop there. He was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? A one-part question, and Jesus continued at that point and gave a two-part answer. He continued on and said, but wait a minute, that's not all, I'm not finished. Love God and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that he provided a two-part question or answer to a one-part question. And what that says to me, the way I read that and interpret that is that Jesus was presenting two pieces that are intimately connected that cannot be separated. He was saying, if you want to know what the greatest commandment is, you really need to see both of these things together. You can't go, you know what, you can pray all you want, you can worship all you want and do activities that look religious that are pointing towards the idea of loving God, but if you're not loving your neighbor, you're probably not loving God either. These two things have to be connected together in order to be whole, in order to be a real answer to the question you asked me, I got to include them both. So Jesus says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself, I just want to pick up on that key phrase at the end of there, as yourself, and just ask what do we think that means. Kind of in our modern psychology, a lot of times we hear the idea, well, that means that Jesus meant that you first have to love yourself in order to be able to love your neighbor, and that may be true, but I don't think that that's what he was getting at. I think what Jesus was trying to get at is to say, in order to love your neighbor, the way I want you to love your neighbor is by looking at how you would want to be loved if you were in that situation. 
That's how to love your neighbor. It requires a a degree of empathy, a degree of being able to imagine yourself in your neighbor's shoes and then loving that way. And that's what I wasn't able to see very well until I was in my neighbor's shoes and suddenly I had these needs and suddenly someone was loving me that way. Loving your neighbor as yourself requires us to view ourselves in our neighbor. The next phrase, verse 40 in here, is one that we often just read right over when we're looking at this passage, but it's a very important one. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let the weight of that sink in for just a moment. And he's basically saying, these things sum up everything else. Another way to say that is, these two commandments, kind of the two-part answer to the one-part question, is the interpretive lens for the rest of the Bible. If you want to know what another commandment in Scripture means, or if you want to understand another part of Scripture, it's all connected back to these two. Put on these lenses and read it through these lenses. Loving God, loving neighbor. It makes this, he holds this up, first of all, it's called the greatest commandment. So we're hearing what is God's priority, what is most important to his heart. We're hearing this and then we're hearing everything else that's been written really just comes back to these two. Depends on these two. Hangs on them. It's hard to put more weight on anything than what Jesus has just done. So in the Luke passage we read this morning, it's a little bit different. It's a different situation. Actually, someone else is coming to Jesus and he asks the question in that one. He says, um, he asks the question, well, how do you read the law and what, you know, what do you think you should do? And, and this person answers with the same thing. He said, love God and love neighbor. And then Jesus says, great, And the guy comes up with another question, still wanting to kind of test Jesus' interpretation of these and said, then who exactly is my neighbor? Super important question for all of us, right? Understanding who our neighbor is. And this guy wanted to define it. And Jesus, do you guys remember how he answered the question? He often told parables to answer questions. And that's exactly what he did. So he told a parable that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So in this parable is about a Jewish guy, and his audience was most likely Jewish and most likely, again, uh, religious leaders at the time. And so this guy goes out from one city, and he's heading on a dangerous road to another one. On this road, of course, we know the story. He gets assaulted, right? So they're connecting with the main character so far in the story. He's like, he's one of them. He gets assaulted, so they're feeling his pain a little bit here. And he gets left for dead in the ditch, stripped naked, robbed, and left. So they're probably jumping ahead in their minds to what the story's conclusion is going to be. You know, we're supposed to help the guy. That's like what it means to be a neighbor, right? If it were only that simple. Jesus throws a curveball at these people. In fact, the next character that he introduces is a priest. It's one of them. 
a highly trained religious leader who, who had specific responsibilities within the, the Jewish religion at the time. And he was the next character. And so, yeah, they're tracking so far. Along comes a priest. He sees the guy. He swings and he misses. He walks by on the other side. He doesn't stop and help. And there might be some reasons for that. In our context today, we often say, well, he was probably busy. You know, we need to cut through our busyness and help people around us. That probably wasn't the reason that they were thinking he didn't stop and help. In that context, there may have been some other reasons. Maybe the road itself was dangerous, and so stopping and helping would be dangerous. Possibly, because he was a priest and he had certain religious duties that he was meant to carry out, Touching the dead, dirty, the dead, or not the dead guy, the half-dead guy who's bloody in the dirt might have made him unclean to perform, perform his duties in the temple. And so possibly he had a religious reason for not helping. Sometimes we come up with religious re- reasons for not loving our neighbor. So he goes by. They may be connecting with that and going, yeah, I kind of get it. He, he's a priest. He's not supposed to touch a bunch of bloody people. Uh, so he goes on by, but now they're uncomfortable. Now they don't like the story. Before they thought they knew where this is going, now they're like, this story's no good, Jesus. I don't like it. Well, it just gets worse from there. The next guy that comes along is a Levite who is also a, from the priestly line, a religious leader in their context. He should know very well the law. Same thing. Walks right by. So the two biggest hitters have just swung and missed. They aren't liking it. And then when Jesus does this next thing, they really don't like it. The next character Jesus introduces to the story is a Samaritan. And just to understand the context for them at the time, Samaritans were a different religion, a different race, a different nationality. They were rejected by the Jews and were not to be associated with. So this is the next character, and now they're all mad. They're like, if they're guessing where this is going, they are now ready to jump out of their seat and grab hold of Jesus, but he does it. He, he goes there. He says, you know what? The Samaritan comes along. He stops, and he helps you. He helps the bleeding Jewish guy in the ditch. He bandages up his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. They go to the next town, and he says, he takes him to an inn, and he says, listen, here's this guy. He's a friend of mine. Here's my credit card. Take care of him well. I've got to go on a journey still. I'll be back. But if, he, if you incur any expenses in taking care of him, put it on my card. I'm paying for this. Jesus just did the unthinkable. He made the Samaritan the hero of his story in demonstrating what it looks like to love neighbor as self. Jesus used a hated foreigner of a different race and a different religion. Whoa. And so at the end, Jesus asked the guy, he says, so who do you think was a neighbor to the guy who was in the ditch? 
And I don't know why he couldn't say it, he didn't say it, but he didn't say the Samaritan. He said, simply said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, now you go and do the same thing. One of the things I absolutely love about Jesus and what I love about the Bible is that Jesus makes, and the Bible oftentimes makes heroes out of marginalized people. Out of people that others reject, they are lifted up and they are the hero of the story. It is so exciting to see that. We just looked at the Samaritan story. There's the woman at the well. You remember her? Jesus has a dialogue with her. Next thing you know, she evangelizes her whole town. Pretty amazing. They all come to know Jesus, or a bunch of them do. A Canaanite woman. Jesus praises her for her faith. A Roman soldier whose faith was unlike any he had seen in all of Israel. Matthew, the tax collector, who comes to know Jesus, and the next thing you know, he hosts a dinner party at his house, and a bunch of, bunch of his sinner friends are there getting to know Jesus. Wow. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, whose life is so transformed, he gives away half of his stuff to the poor. And there's many, many more. Jesus made heroes out of marginalized people. Now, it's worth thinking about what we do at Mission Adelante and what we love to do in connecting with and loving people from all places. We feel a great sense of connection with the stories that Jesus told about this, with the fact that the example he used as who is my neighbor, neighbor was exactly that, a foreigner, different race, different religion. When we wanted to know, he wanted to demonstrate what it looks like to actually fulfill this greatest commandment, he used somebody who was an outsider to describe that. We hang on to that. It's at the core of what Jesus is doing and talking about. It's at the core, the center of his commandments. The idea that he lifted up outsiders a lot of times and marginalized people as heroes is also dear to our heart. You know, we've, in the last several years, we've heard a lot of negative press regarding immigrants, a lot of things being thrown around and said that are negative. And when I looked around my community as we hear these things, I said, but that's not what I see. That's not what I see in my neighborhood. It's not the negative picture that gets painted. We moved into Wyandotte County and KCK in our neighborhood in 2005, and we've seen a lot of amazing things happen there. I went back in the midst of um, hearing a lot of negative things and looked at some population data and tried to figure out if there was data to support what I was seeing with my own eyes. And I did a little study on Wyandotte County data from 1980 to 2017, just the population data, and to see what I could dig up from there. We had a story happening in Wyandotte County, and it's still happening. During that period, 1980 to 2017, Wyandotte County lost, what is it, 57,000 white residents. 57,000 white residents left Wyandotte County in a mass exodus during those decades. That is one-third of the population of our entire county. Can you imagine what would happen to a county or to a city or to any place when you lose a third of the population? 
Wow. Think about a city block, residential block, that might have 30 houses on it. Now, 10 of those houses are vacant. The people have just left. And that's not one block. That's every block in the entire county. Housing values go down. Tax revenues plummet. Businesses close. Schools close. Crime increases. All of those things are the fruit of that type of population exodus in a place. Well, it's interesting that that isn't exactly what happened in Wyandotte County. We have had our struggles, and that's been a big piece of it. However, during the same period of time, I discovered that we gained 38,000 Latino residents. 38,000 Latino residents really began coming in and filling in the gap that was being left by white residents who were leaving. And what were they doing? Occupying homes, first of all, fixing them up, starting businesses, consuming and working. Today, when you walk down Central Avenue, it's much different than it was in 2005 when we moved in. More businesses are starting. Fewer businesses are boarded up. If you all remember back in 2005 to even up to 2007, what was at I-70 and 18th Street? Some of you might take a second to think if you're familiar with that, with that area, but it was an old abandoned truck stop. A huge piece of concrete there with a raunchy motel. That was the gate, gateway to our community. In 2008, in this wave of influx of immigrants from Latin America and from other places, the little corner grocery store from 18th and Central called Chaz Ball took a risk, worked with a developer and the unified government of KCK, and they moved down there, they developed that shopping center, and they put in Sunfresh, a big store. A bunch of other commercial buildings down there now, businesses, some of them are owned by immigrants, and that little shopping center, Prescott Plaza, is a thriving commercial center in our neighborhood now. And it's possible because we had people. It's not that immigrants are any better than other, any other person, or that, but they came. They filled a gap that was badly needed to be filled. And they started doing what people do. And in a lot of ways, they saved Wyandotte County from disaster. Right here we have the Kaufman Center in KCMO. The Kaufman Center does a lot with entrepreneurship and they do a study on entrepreneurship and they have found year after year that immigrants are twice as likely as native-born Americans to start new businesses. You want to know who's starting new businesses in Wyandotte County? A lot of immigrants are. That's exciting to see. They are transforming our county in a lot of ways. Another big piece of data that I had to get to the bottom of as I was watching this happen and then hearing news things about this was crime. What about crime? What about immigrants and crime, this connection that's being thrown out there constantly? I went to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation website and just simply pulled up the data. We saw during the, the years of 2003 to 2017 when we were having the greatest influx, a 32% drop in crime. That is dramatic. That's not a small, insignificant amount. That is dramatic. And it goes against what you hear 
our community is being transformed, made better by people from all places, and it's exciting for us to see. Hero stories about marginalized people. I have a lot more that I could tell, but I don't have time. As we kind of get close to wrapping up here, I want to ask you guys, who has a favorite verse in Leviticus? <laughs> Nobody else is raising their hand, but I do. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. Some of my favorite, it's a couple of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I just want to read this to you and then connect the dots for you. It says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. You shall love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want to just point out a few things in this passage. So this foreigner, this Gad, the one that's used 92 times in the Old Testament, this is one of the places First off, it starts off saying, do not mistreat them. This is God saying, do not mistreat somebody who comes from another place. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Don't view them differently. They're the same. They're just like you and me. We're all stamped with the image of our creator. The next phrase is really important, and this is really the key and the reason this verse is so important to me. It says, you shall love them, everybody, directly connecting this to what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. In fact, Jesus didn't pull that out of a hat when they asked him that question. Jesus was pulling that from Leviticus 19. In fact, the second half of Leviticus 19 is a bunch of examples of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the examples that he specifically gives is this applies, this commandment applies very specifically to immigrants. So it's weighty to me that when Jesus wanted to say, who's my neighbor, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. And then the Old Testament also very specifically applies who is my neighbor to immigrants. Very powerful. The next line says, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Remember what it was like in Egypt. Empathize with your neighbor, put yourself in their shoes because you know what that felt like. It's in your history anyway. You were enslaved in Egypt. Jesus is calling them, God is calling them to remember Egypt and not to do that to others. Then the last phrase, I am the Lord your God. His stamp of authority placed on this passage, again, saying this is not some frivolous thing. It's not this thing that Moses made up. This is me, God, speaking. This is important, and I'm declaring it and putting my stamp on the end of this thing. I am the Lord your God. I want to bring us to a close with a poem that I wrote a few years ago that's still really relevant to us today. It's called Immigration Tears. Rain falls like tears from heaven, crying for the pain of millions whom God loves and are created in his image. 
Living to the south, cycles of poverty perpetuate. The stench of government corruption poisons progress. Violence devastates viability. Work and wages wither. On mission trips, we say, wow, they're so happy in their simple life. But in believing so, we minimize their strife. We choose to view their suffering as a blessing while knowing inside that we could never live like that. We somehow see ourselves as different. And this blinds us to their plight and stops us short of action. They're now our neighbors trying to, to escape what we could never bear. They've left children and wives. They've risked their lives to make a future for them and to leave despair. We're angry. We say, go back. We look at them with disdain and demonstrate the compassion we lack. What's ours is ours, we feel justified in declaring. We're blessed by God, and we don't like sharing. Wait in line. Follow the rules. Learn our language, we shout, not realizing or caring that broken laws have shut them out. If you're a doctor, welcome in. Or if your family member is a citizen. If not, you can try your luck. Win the lottery, or you're simply stuck. It's economics, we say, as our hoarding hearts betray the fact that we were not sincere when in their land we shed a tear for the blessings that destroy and the poverty they enjoy. Politics and Christianity, now mixed, make it hard to draw the line between secular and divine. Complexities build a web of confusion in our minds. How does Christian thought and action address the situation and distress? Obey the law, some say, is the rule that wins the day. Not to slight this right command, but what about us who were born in this land? Does not the Lord this law decree that love your neighbor is priority? What's our response to our neighbor's pain? How about mercy, not disdain? Of course, they're sinners, as are we. We need the truth to set us free. The greatest commandment cannot be ignored, and without the gospel, we cannot be restored. It's the mission field you see coming here to you and me. Let us not in blindness miss the hypocrisy of all of this. To visit them in their homes and say Jesus loves on one day and then the next when they move in on our block to say go home and bolt the lock. The rain again is falling down. Crying for us Christians now. Not for suffering or for pain, but for missing the point. An ugly stain. Let us repent and turn around. God, change our hearts. Renew us now. Give us compassion and hearts of grace. Help us not to turn our face from those, from you or those who need to taste the news of Christ, his saving love, and skies that clear from clouds above. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you challenged the way that you lifted up people who others viewed as outsiders and made them insiders in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would do the same. I pray that together we would lock arms and that we would write a different narrative, that we would be obedient to your calling, to your commandments, that our hearts would break in love for others, that we would see the value that others bring to us not as needy, but as image bearers, and that we would walk together in that love. Jesus, I pray for Christ's community and Mission Adelante that our partnership would continue to grow, that we would connect with one another, that you would open up new avenues and ways for us to, 
to serve this city together. In Jesus' name.